This episode of the Gondrepreneur Podcast is sponsored by Kova, the leading compliant point of sale suite for cannabis retailers and delivery services. Kova was developed to address the needs of retail businesses in California, Colorado, Washington, and Canada. Kova integrates with state traceability systems such as Metric and Leaf, as well as a wide variety of other business tools such as Baker, Spring Big, and iHeartJane. Kova also has built-in compliance features, such as looping alerts when purchase limit is exceeded, automated sales tax, and instant age verification with ID scanning. Discover the next evolution of cannabis retail software today at kovasoftware.com. Hey there, I'm your host, T.G. Brandfault, and you're listening to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast, where we try to bring you actionable information and normalize cannabis through the stories of Gondrepreneurs, activists, and industry stakeholders. Today, my guest is Rick Thompson. He's the board member of Michigan Normal and MI Legalized. He's the owner of Michigan Cannabis Business Development Group. He's an activist and a journalist guy who wears many hats. Love having them on my show. How are you doing this afternoon, Rick? Tim, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on the gondrepreneur.com episode. I'm, I'm super stoked. Uh, before we get into, you know, the, the recent success uh, at the at the polls, I want to talk to you about 2016. Um, why, what happened in 2016? Uh, you know, why did that initiative not end up even going to voters? And tell me what you learned from that experience. In 2016, uh, the MI Legalize tried to put forth a ballot proposal to put legalization on the ballot. Uh, we required 252,000 signatures. We collected enough signatures to qualify for the ballot, but we didn't do it within a 180-day window that the Michigan law states that we have to use. Now, there was a legal interpretation that allowed us to believe we could possibly prevail even outside that 180-day window. But during our petition drive, the legislature took it upon themselves to close that window and change the legislation. And as a result, the Supreme Court of the state of Michigan did not honor our request to get on the ballot. So that's what fueled our desire to get the legalization on the ballot in 2018. And um, you know, so so tell me about the the 2018 experience. Uh, you know, from from collecting signatures to actually getting it on the ballot to the success. You know, walk me through uh, your experience with that. You know, f- from a you know being a guy on the ground. Well, I've been on the board of directors of MI Legalized 2016, and then prior to that, I was one of the principals of the Repeal Today movement, which tried to legalize marijuana in Michigan in 2012. So, and. Um, 2016, when we realized we were not going to make the ballot, we started looking for uh, additional sponsors in order to help us out. Uh, Marijuana Policy Project and Drug Policy Alliance expressed some interest in coming to Michigan to do a legalization initiative, but they wanted to wait until 2020. We were able to convince them that 2018 was the right time for this movement in our particular state. We had the infrastructure, we had momentum going. And it was the synergy between the national partners and the local on-the-ground activists that was able to make our Committee to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol group successful in our effort to put that legalization proposal on the ballot. But we had to learn by making some mistakes in 2016 before we could be successful with our 18 campaign. So, and that ballot initiative passed 56%. I mean, it was a, you know, borderline slam dunk. Uh, And recently, Senate Majority Leader Arlen Meekhoff introduced a measure that would get rid of the home-growing provisions in that voter-approved measure. On your opinion, what are the chances that this passes? 
I don't think that the Arlen Meekoff bill will pass in its current form. It's about 75 pages long. It contains a ton of changes to the legalization proposal before the legalization proposal is even realized. Uh, it doesn't have 100% Republican support, which would it would need, and it doesn't have any Democratic support. Because the legalization proposal is a citizen-directed initiative, it requires a three-quarters supermajority vote in both the House and the Senate in order to make amendments to it. It doesn't seem like in its current form the Meekoff bill will be able to get that. However, in the lame duck session of legislature, compromises are made, changes are made that are subtle or, or more abrupt, and deals get struck in the wee hours of the morning. So we're never certain until the legislature dismisses for the year that they're not going to be successful doing something. So earlier you had mentioned, you know, the, the coalitions and relationships that you had built uh, in 2018. What is, you know, the sort of overall importance of building these relationships and how do you overcome the different opinions when everybody has the same end goal? Well, what we saw is that both sides, the national partners and the in-state activist network, uh, were absolutely dependent upon each other in order to be successful. With MI Legalized, we'd just seen in 2016 that our in-state efforts by themselves did not get the job done. But we also saw in national races sometimes uh, national organizations that do not get the support of the local community in the states that they're trying to get legislation passed in, that turns out to be not successful too. So we worked from a position of dependence on each other. We also eliminated people that were not willing to or capable of working in group scenarios with other folks, and then moved forward from that point. Uh, we had a lot of conversations, and we represented a lot of different viewpoints in this issue with a smaller group of people that drafted the actual language of the proposal. There were some, uh, some professionals, uh, some folks representing interest groups, and then also a group of activists that were there as well. And that's one of the reasons why we have a proposal that has the most liberal possession limits in the United States, the most liberal cultivation limits in the United States on a personal level. Um, because we maintained involved in that process of drafting. And it also allowed us to retain our support base as a state-based community because we didn't betray the people that put their trust in us to represent them properly in those negotiations. And you, you mentioned, you know, the activists that played a role uh, in the 2018 success. Uh, you yourself, you're an activist, but sort of... I uh, you're also a citizen journalist, um, you know, with your social revolution blog, something that I as a journalist have used to find stories in Michigan. Um, so so when did you decide to take on that citizen journalist role? Well, in 2009, when we launched the Michigan Medical Marijuana Magazine, that was really the linchpin to uh, the start of my my movement into journalism. I'd never really done any journalism prior to that. But we really recognized that patients were not getting any information and that people were accidentally becoming criminals, even though they believed that they were following the letter of the law. So we started with the purest of intent. And in fact, to be honest with you, the, the first magazine really was never 
a money maker. <laughs> we, 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 uh, you know, we took a lot of hits as far as financially to put that out there, but it was worth every issue and episode. So, uh, after that was no longer successful, uh, for a variety of reasons, I transferred over into internet journalism to maintain that still, that still concept that we have to let people know what's going on and that an informed citizenry is a, is a better thing for everybody. Uh, and that's continued on through my different, my several different uh, incarnations uh, in, in internet journalism. I also try and keep that message going too when I do my public appearances. I'm frequently an MC or a speaker at a lot of the functions we have here in the state. And I, I try to keep that that spirit of community and dependence and, and interdependence alive every time I talk to our people. So, uh, you know, when, when we had spoken before, you'd mentioned to me, you know, that uh, you didn't really play much of a role in the passage of the medical cannabis laws 10 years ago. Um, and since then, you've really become one of the foremost advocates in the state. Uh, you know, your profile's pretty high. Um, how'd you end up, you know, 10 years later going from someone who wasn't involved to someone who is a key player in cannabis policy in the state? I think when we look at citizen journalism, citizen journalism is is incredibly admirable, but very uh, uh, low on the pay scale. So in order to support my citizen journalism, uh, I did some things that were business related in the cannabis industry. And because I kept all of my 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 balls that were in the air were all in the cannabis sphere, uh, my focus was was exclusively on this industry. Not everybody gets that opportunity, but I was able to take that and, and translate that into testimony at the House, testimony at the Senate. Um, I was recognized by High Times, their, their international business conference in Washington, D.C., and giving a presentation on, on the, the emergent markets in the Midwest. Um, by staying true to my purpose and by completely devoting everything I had, I was able to remain in this game. If I had a nine to five job like most other people, I wouldn't have been nearly as effective in, in architecting change and in helping other people do the same. So you, you mentioned, you know, citizen journalism uh, isn't a moneymaker. Uh, publishing, uh, you know, as as most people will tell you, doesn't make you a lot of money. Uh, but you, you started the Michigan Cannabis Business Development Group. Uh, tell me about that and, and what you do with that. The Michigan Cannabis Business Development Group is a uh, an organization. We do small business conferences across the state. I target university facilities or hotels, larger hotels. Uh, we have done eight so far since 2015. And this weekend on Sunday will be our ninth conference. That'll be at the Lansing Radisson Hotel uh, at the Grand Ballroom. This is my third year in a row doing a small business conference for cannabis entrepreneurs at that particular location in December. And we've also been to, oh goodness, Detroit, Ann Arbor, Bay City, Flint, Traverse City. We try to spread the information out around as much of the state as possible because there are a lot of people with questions that can't travel to get someone to answer them. So we try our very best to bring our show and all of the information that we provide out to the, the places that are otherwise kind of ignored by traditional uh, speaking engagements or traditional conference series. 
You mentioned that that's aimed at small businesses. I know that, you know, whenever legalization is discussed or passed, um, you know, there's always this question about big business coming in, swooping in, you know, and wiping out all the existing businesses and growers. Is that something that's concerning uh, to you guys out in Michigan? It's very much a concern. In our medical marijuana business program, which is the only business program that we have in Michigan right now, since we won't see legalized cannabis businesses until at least 2020, uh, in our, our business program right now for the medical community, we have three different levels of growers, a 500 plant grow, a 1,000 plant grow, and a 1,500 plant grow. And if you've got a 1,500 plant license, you can stack them, meaning that you can grow 1,500, 3,000, 4,500, 6,000. The sky's the limit, essentially. The first award of a license for a cultivator for a cultivator in Michigan was for a four license stacked facility giving one particular person 6000 plants of power now that's a lot of juice to give one particular company but it's also a lot of risk for our industry as well if something were to happen for example a bankruptcy or some kind of a of a business related issue where those 6000 plants automatically had to stop and go offline that would represent a significant interruption in the supply chain in Michigan so it's always been my belief that having more grow operations around the state would be a better way to insulate the patient population from those fluctuations that we've seen happen in other states like Oregon and Washington. So we're very concerned that having a corporate influence could dominate the market and bring with it some of the risks for catastrophic failure. But also, we're very concerned about the medical quality, too. You can see where a bean counter, someone who's a financier, could look at a square foot space in a grow operation and decide that they could only allocate that space to a plant that yields eight pounds or more. But we know that some of the most medicinal plants are, are some of the sativas and they oftentimes don't yield as much as some of the big fat indicas do. So if you're making decisions from a corporate advantage level, as opposed to what's best for your patients, then that doesn't advantage our community whatsoever. And we're very concerned about that type of thing happening. So what what comes next in the legalization process? This is out of the voters' hands. This is out of you know the advocates' hands. Uh, you know what's coming next? You said that they're you know non patients won't start being able to buy cannabis until about twenty twenty. Right now, personal freedoms, which are the uh, twelve plants to grow per household and the two point five ounces that you can have on yourself, those will begin on December sixth. But the state of Michigan has a twelve month period in which they can promulgate rules that will govern the licensing of legalization businesses. So that would put the ETA date on legalization businesses at sometime in twenty twenty. Uh, I will say that we have elected uh, just this last November a very favorable governor and a very favorable attorney general, both of whom spoke at the hash bash in Ann Arbor this year, the first time ever that we've had this. So uh, we have the most progressive group of people in charge that Michigan's ever experienced as far as I'm concerned. So when we talk about what the possibilities are, uh, we can we can maybe accelerate the process. They have 12 months to make rules, but maybe they only take six because they're incentivized by the governor to get them done more quickly. So we could see it faster, but probably not. But what 2019 represents, though, is a very big step forward in the business community in Michigan regarding cannabis. The MMFLA, which is the 
Medical Marijuana Facilities Licensing Act. That's the business wing of the medical marijuana program. And they've been licensing businesses as fast as they can in 2018. And in 2019, most of those businesses will come online and additional businesses will be licensed. So we'll see spreading across the state a fully fleshed out business community serving the patients that we have, which are about 300,000 registered patients in Michigan right now. So 2019 will be exciting for that. But then also when 2020 comes around, those MMFLA licensed facilities, those people that are already providing medical cannabis, those will be the first facilities that receive permission to, to sell legalized cannabis too. So we architected the legalization bill to build upon the successes in the medical program So instead of reinventing the wheel and creating a whole brand new separate infrastructure, we elected to use the same infrastructure. We just also elected to use smarter rules to run those businesses, though. And I know that in in the medical program out there that some communities have opted out. They don't allow cannabis uh, businesses to operate. What's what's the word on the street in terms of communities now? You know, you had mentioned that, you know, you're a little bit galvanized right now from the incoming governor and incoming attorney general. Do you foresee a lot of uh, local communities opting out of of uh, the, the recreational side of this? I think that the concept of opting out is actually not included in the legalization proposal itself, nor has there been any state department requiring communities to opt out. Um, So it is a phenomenon that's happening. It's kind of inspired by the anti-legalization proponents, uh, primarily Healthy and Productive Michigan, which is a a in-state arm uh, funded almost exclusively by smart approaches to marijuana. Um, So we're seeing a lot of communities make declarations that were already saying no prior to legalization. But the state of Michigan maintains a database that has about 110 different communities in the state that have already said yes to medical marijuana businesses in in their locations. And so that 110 communities will be the basis upon which legalization will jump off. But it's my understanding, or at least my belief, that we'll probably see a lot more communities saying yes to to medical and legalized businesses in the upcoming year because they're going to see the advantages it brings to their neighbor communities. Um, Nobody wants to be first, but everybody wants to get money. So when the guys who go first start to show a profit, everybody else will line up in order to get into that trough like little piggies. <laughs> Do you think that um legalization in Canada uh helped you guys this year uh you know being as though you know you can throw a rock from Detroit <laughs> to uh to Canada Well it and it is true in fact uh, parts of Detroit uh, are actually north of parts of Canada in Michigan most people don't know that we are very very close to Canada right here but I don't believe that that had a big influence and I'll I'll tell you why we've been polling uh, at about 57 to 60% pretty much you know regularly throughout 2018 so when Canada legalized cannabis it didn't really affect our poll numbers any. So I can't imagine that it affected that. Here's the other thing too, though, Tim, is that our poll numbers indicated that there were only about four or 5% of Michiganders who were undecided on the issue of cannabis. So they, these people had already made up their minds long before the advertising campaigns or the, the, uh, the 
you know, town halls and all of the negativity that we saw brought here and all the falsehoods that were perpetrated through the media. Um, Michigan was ready for it. They had already decided. Now, that's something that's a privilege that a lot of other states that are going to explore medical or legalized cannabis are not going to enjoy. As I mentioned, we had the 2012 effort to uh, to legalize, and then we had the 2016 effort to legalize prior to our 2018 effort. And it was only because of those recent media events, the legalization efforts, that we, we accomplished that big in-state knowledge base. Um, a lot of other places don't have that. So it'll be more of a difficult struggle for them. Well, speaking of other states, what does Michigan's legalization, strong legalization, uh, mean for, uh, you know, the rest of the Midwest? I mean, Wisconsin has, you know, one of the worst medical programs in the country. Um, Ohio famously, you know, uh, chose not to legalize a few years ago, and, and that was for, you know, more of the bill reasons. But what do you think it means for the rest of the region? Well, what we've said all along is that Michigan's going to set a new standard for the way that America legalizes cannabis. We have the most the most generous possession limits. We have the most generous cultivation limits. And we've uh, kept the taxes lower than any other legalized state in the United States. Our tax is only 10% on cannabis. And it was done intentionally in order to stifle the black market and to encourage people to come into the rec market. But what it means nationally is that there's a new new bar for the next state to, to raise. Instead of 12 plants per house, maybe they'll say 20 plants per household. Instead of 2.5 ounces, maybe they'll say no possession limit. As long as you're not selling, you can have whatever you got. So it's possible that by establishing such a friendly law in Michigan, that we're going to raise the bar for all other states that come after us. But it's also an incentive for other Midwestern states to adopt more liberal laws. We saw, as you mentioned, Wisconsin's got a terrible law. Illinois' law started off not very good. Uh, they made it difficult for patients to register and difficult for businesses to get open. And they're program suffered because of it. And now we're seeing them loosen up on those laws and looks like maybe they'll actually have a functioning medical system. I also note that the governor in Illinois seems to be extremely interested in getting legalization in his state too. And I think that has a lot to do with Michigan's success. Uh, we're also seeing more common sense principles being brought about in Ohio's system. Uh, I'm like what I see in Pennsylvania and New York. So Michigan is helping to be the lead dog, but this is really a, a, a sled train of, of, you know, eight or nine of us, eight or nine states that are pushing towards the same common goal. We just happen to be in front right now. And being in front gives you a business advantage. I would love very much to see Detroit become the intellectual hub of the cannabis industry in the Midwest. I'd like to see, you know, people like MedMen or, or other places come in and, and choose to set up shop in Michigan because of a friendly environment and pass over places like Chicago or Columbus or Indianapolis. I would like to see Michigan have an opportunity to have a resurgence of industry that we haven't seen since the takeoff of the automobile industry. And certainly we have enough experience and enough talent here in the state to make those dreams a reality. You mentioned the automotive industry and, you know, GM just announced that they were they were closing some plants. And, uh, you know, I guess I guess I'm wondering whether or not you've heard, you know, business interested business people saying, hey, there's an old car factory that, you know, has all of this square footage. And, you know, we don't have to 
really rebuild a new facility, just rehab uh, these former car facilities. Is that something that you think could happen or that you're sort of already hearing rumblings about happening? Well, for certain types of facilities, that certainly may be advantageous. Most of the automobile facilities that you may be referring to are in urban environments, and they would be ideal for things like cultivation centers, Um, you know, big open spaces that you could individualize, um, build interior walls and set things aside, uh, control your environment. But for transportation or for processing or for retail, probably not so ideal. So we have an opportunity to repurpose some of those facilities. And in fact, we saw quite a few of those uh, types of businesses and buildings uh, emerge in Detroit while Detroit was being very permissive. Uh, Detroit has no longer become permissive and they've become uh, quite uh, difficult to work with. So we're seeing a lot of those people that had success in uh, 15, 16, and 17 in the medical program uh, with large-scale cultivation. Uh, that was sort of a gray market thing. Those people are being forced out now. So what we are seeing, though, across the state are provisioning centers, which is our term for dispensary, uh, provisioning centers occupying places and towns that have been v- vacant and derelict for a long time. And we see those buildings being rehabbed and having their value improved and having, you know, parking lots being paved and new roofs being put on and beautiful signage being put up. Um, So the example that people in Michigan have seen of the medical community has been a positive one over the last nine years. It's one of the reasons why we had such a low undecided rate going into November 6th election. Are there any immediate social justice? social justice aspects in the bill and and what about social equity well one of the things our bill uh suggests is that we try to reward communities that have been historically disadvantaged by the war on drugs Um, the methodology through which the state selectively helps those communities is not outlined Um, when you do a voter directed initiative you're limited in the amount of space that you can use so you can't put everything in that you might possibly want you can direct the state to do something but you may not be able to fully articulate the method by which you want the state to accomplish that purpose so to a certain degree we've laid out some guidelines and then we're trusting the state to follow through and make sure that they honor our intent but the biggest thing as far as social justice goes was expungement and we wanted to make sure that that was included in the bill in order to relieve Uh, people who uh, were convicted of crimes that would now be legalized under the new proposals law. Uh, We were not able to include expungement in our proposal because Michigan has something called a single issue rule. And it means a voter directed initiative cannot focus on too many things. If it tries to accomplish too much when too many areas of law, then it can be determined to be invalid. And our attorneys were concerned that if we included expungement, we might be assailable in court. However, in Michigan, there is a second way to accomplish expungement, and that's through a legislative process. Representative Sheldon Neely from Flint here has introduced a bill for expungement already in the, in the legislative session. It may not get a lot of attention uh, in 2018 because of all the other things they're trying to accomplish during this very brief lame duck session that they have. But 2019, almost certainly we're going to see expungement introduced. And both our new incoming attorney general and our incoming governor have both expressed support for the concept of expungement. So we feel like we'll actually have a government that wants to accomplish the things that we want to accomplish, which will be (laughs) a very nice position to be in finally. (laughs) Um, And you're, of course, talking about Shoot, who was not friendly um, to to your cause. 
Um, how will patients uh, and the medical cannabis program in the state be affected by the legalization measure? Well, what we think is that the patient population is going to be enhanced by the legalization proposal. Right now, patients rule, okay? They're the only people that can grow plants in Michigan legally until December 6th. Uh, and uh, you can assign a caregiver to grow your plants on your behalf. And that caregiver can accumulate up to five patients and grow on their behalf too. So if that caregiver is also a patient and he has five patients as well, that gives him a maximum of 72 plants uh, in in his uh, domicile that he can legally grow. With the legalization proposal, we wanted to be able to help somebody who's growing 60 or 72 plants have a leg into the business community. So we set a bar low in order to be able to, to accomplish that. We put a 100 plant grow limit on that. So it should be easy to translate someone's skill set from a 72 plant grow to a 100 plant grow. It might be very difficult to translate it from a 72 plant grow to a 500 plant grow as currently as outlined in the medical marijuana business program. So with the legalization, we wanted to give it an easier way for people to, to become business persons. But we also wanted to respect uh, the integrity of someone's ability to be able to to cultivate and process uh, their own cannabis in maybe an organic way or, or perhaps to, to provide for that specialty product that certain, certain groups of uh, consumers are going to want. So we created something called a micro business environment, and that would be a vertically integrated grow processing and retail operation run by a single entity or, or family. And we tried to model it after the craft beer uh, a licensing style. And that should be much easier to get into than it would be if you were trying to arrange the same three type of licenses through the medical program, which would require you to have at least three quarters of a million dollars in financial equity in order to secure those three licenses individually. So we architected legalization to make it easier for patients to translate the skills that they developed growing for themselves or for others into a business advantage. Uh, in addition to that, by using the the addition the existing medical business framework to launch the legalization framework from means that the locations that patients are used to getting medicine from will be the place that they could go to if they needed to uh, uh, gain other things. Um, you know, if you needed to behave not like a patient for a while, if you needed to acquire um, clones, or if you needed to acquire something else, you'd have an opportunity to do so through the legalized market. It's really forward thinking of of your of your initiative of of the drafters of the initiative. What states did you guys look to for best practices? Now that we have you 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 know you had several state legislations to choose from instead of you know say one or two. Well, I will uh, first of all state right out that I was not one of the people sitting at that drafting table in order to, to hammer out that process. I am not personality wise suited to dealing with people uh, that that proposed idiocy. So I, uh, I was not well suited to that task. So other people did, uh, Jeff Hank, Matthew Abel, Jamie Lowell specifically for our, our cause. Uh, but most of what we saw from national programs was brought to us by our national partners. Uh, you can't beat the Drug Policy Alliance or Marijuana, Marijuana Policy Project for having that knowledge and that leg up on all the different intricacies of the different state programs. 
And the experience base that they brought to it as well was invaluable. We couldn't duplicate that just from in-state activists. Um, they, they told us what worked in previous states, what didn't. They brought us examples of language that we could look at to try and accomplish a single goal in a variety of different ways. And we, we hacked out some of the experiences they had in other states and then helped them understand why what they proposed would or would not work in Michigan based on our unique structure. So a lot of what we did was directed by our national partners when it came to to melding some of those policies. But there was certainly a move to only allow two plants at some point. There certainly was a move to only allow six plants at some point. But our negotiating partners, especially the three men I just mentioned, uh, they helped to secure that 12 plant standard, which mirrors what we what we give our medical patients as far as permission and privilege in Michigan. So I, I want to sort of switch gears a little bit um, and, and talk to you about the state police program uh, that was you know searching for cannabis impairment using mouth swabs. Uh, they recently wrapped that up. Um, have you heard anything yet about the results of that program or whether they're going to continue to use that uh, mouth swab test uh, to test for cannabis impairment? What do you know about that? Well, in 2016, the legislature enacted two separate issues. One of them was to uh, put an impaired driving commission out there whose specific purpose in title was to determine a THC limit for impairment for drivers, not to determine if an impairment limit was valid scientifically, but to determine a number they could use, which is really not the way you do science. Secondly, they, they initiated this roadside swab testing that you're talking about. Now, the roadside swab testing is uh, was a pilot program for only five counties, and it's not scientifically performed. In other words, when a drug recognition expert has you pulled over on the side of the road, he decides then whether he thinks you may be impaired and then gives you the test, not giving the test to just everybody that they happen to stop. So we expect that those tests are going to have a higher rate of return of success because they've been selectively using the tests in the way they apply them. The other thing is it's not Food and Drug Administration approved, so there's a question about the reliability and accuracy. And in fact, this pilot program was designed and pitched to the legislature as an experiment to determine the validity of this particular type of test, which to me always seemed like we were using Michigan citizens to do some testing that the manufacturer should have done at their own expense prior to bringing any of these tests out onto the market. But uh, we'll see the results of the tests after 2019, but we may see the influence of those tests here in the next few days. Because one of the things that some of the, the conservative legislators in Michigan who are leaving power have wanted to do is establish that THC nanogram driving limit. And I don't think they believe that they're going to get that limit established under a very friendly administration by the incoming governor and attorney general. So they may very well try to push through legislation that establishes that standard, utilizing the results that they got from those mouth swabs, even though they may not have fully formed a report that are ready to, uh, to submit to the people. So uh, we're very concerned about it. It seems incredibly subjective. The mouth swabs, if it returns a positive result, then you have to have a blood test in order to confirm. So if you get swabbed and it says, yes, you're guaranteed a ride to the hospital, which is just atrocious. Um, the science obviously is not there to improve uh, 
any kind of an oral swab would indicate impairment. We believe that the best way to determine someone's operating their vehicle in an inappropriate or unsafe manner is to watch how they operate their vehicle. And when you see them operating in, in an unsafe manner, then you can take action. The content of their bloodstream doesn't determine their ability to drive correctly. Well, I'm sure you'll be keeping a close eye on this. So, you know, probably publishing it on the Social Revolution blog, I'd imagine, huh? Well, we do a lot of work uh, with the legislature on these particular issues. We have a couple of different partners that that's specifically work up in Lansing that do things. So we will be uh, talking about this. We will be putting things out as regularly as we can to keep everyone updated. Again, there's just just such a lack of information coming from the state. But in Michigan, we're very fortunate that we have strong media partnerships, which have been developed over the last 10 years of of advocacy on behalf of medical marijuana patients. Now, media members recognize the issues we've been raising. They see the contradictions that are being said by the government, and now they question those voices of authority that told them in the past things like, you know, kids are going to get this, uh, people are going to start going to the hospital, you're going to see uh, traffic fatalities increase. They're demanding proof instead of just accepting the words. And that's, a, that's an evolution that, that, you know, that you can't pay for. You have to earn that. And you only get that by years and years of being a good media partner and behaving properly in your state. And our patients have earned that. So th- throughout this this conversation, man, I mean, you've you've covered a lot of ground. Um, but, but now I want to ask you what your advice is for advocates in states, the few that remain with the initiative processes uh, that might attempt to undertake this petition process. All right. Uh, my advice for people who want to undertake the petition process is have your head examined. It's a lot of work. <laughs> the fact is, though, not every state offers a petition process. So if you have a if you live in a state that does, you kind of have an extra obligation to do it, people, because folks in, in about 24 states don't have that right. And they have to go through the legislature to accomplish anything. First thing I would say, though, is identify who positive partners are going to be. And you have to have a frank evaluation about whose personalities just do not gel with the rest of the group. And then you have to make sure those people are not included. Now, there's ways you can do it that don't offend, that still allow you to maintain infrastructure. But you have to eliminate people that simply can't compromise. And that means sometimes some of your strongest patient advocates have to maybe sit on the sidelines because if you can't negotiate something, you can't be part of a group. Groups are about negotiation and compromise. Secondly, I think you have to line up in advance financial sources. One of the things we chased during the entire time of the 2016 campaign and then again in the 2018 campaign was funding. Now, it's impossible to secure all your funding up front, but if you have people upon whom you know you can count on when crucial deadlines come up or when you need more petitions printed or you need to to have some media to counter some negative uh, attacks that you're experiencing. If you've got people you can count on in those times, then you're doing pretty good. But then it's find a mentor. And that mentor would be an organization who's successfully done this in other states. Marijuana Policy Project, Drug Policy Alliance, National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. You can pick your national partner, but pick their brain and get them involved. We, we suffered twice 
and were unsuccessful because we tried to do it on our own. Um, and when we brought the national partner in, we'd already built an infrastructure that made it possible for us to be successful. But without the national partnership, we would not have collected enough signatures to qualify for the ballot. Well, Rick, this has been really enlightening, uh, really great conversation. Um, congratulations on your success. I really look forward to uh, seeing, you know, how this develops. And, um, you know, I'll, you know, as you know, I, I spent a little bit of time in Detroit and I, I think uh, it, might, it might be time for a visit back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, I'll have some uh, some mitten style hospitality for you if you'd come back to Great Lakes, buddy. I, I really appreciate your time, Rick. Thank you very much, Tim. Uh, I enjoy Gondrepreneur and all the different things that you all do. Thank you. You can find more episodes of Gondrepreneur.com podcast in the podcast section of Gondrepreneur.com and in the Apple iTunes store. On the Gondrepreneur.com website, you will find the latest cannabis news and cannabis jobs updated daily, along with transcripts of this podcast. You can also download the Gondrepreneur.com app in iTunes and Google Play. This episode was engineered by Trim Media House. I've been your host, T.G. Brandt. Thank you.